good to see you all uh, in this kind of this Sunday where the weather's kind of going back and forth, but God is still good, and uh, I'm always happy to, you know, worship together with you all as a church. So if you could, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Again, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Let me read it for us. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in any way or in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As the word of God, please um, close your eyes with me and let's um, plead with God together. Heavenly Father, um, would you open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to see the magnitude of your presence, uh, even in this place or wherever we are uh, watching this live stream. That just as you open the eyes of Elisha's servant, may we see that you are filling the whole universe and we are sitting under that magnitude of your word. The word that spoke and created the world, the whole universe. That same powerful word is this very word that we are about to study and hear from you. So God, um, again, work in our hearts, even right now, so that we can uh, be focused on what you have to say and be transformed by your spirit through this time. But thank you for the church Thank you that we can do this as a body, that none of us are left alone. May we become um, united and get stronger and stronger, even through this pandemic, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Jim Elliott. I wonder how many of us recognize the name. He's an American missionary who uh, went to South America and he was killed at the age of 28. Uh, Killed by the very people that he was serving to evangelize. And 
Eliot is famous for saying this uh, one quote. Uh, it wasn't his original quote, I believe, but he uh, wrote it in one of his journals before he died. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Again, he said, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Basically saying that for him, for Jim Elliot, Christ was worthy of his life and death. And again, after this, he literally died for Christ. You know, when we hear a story like this, I think part of our hearts might say something like, you know, that's noble, but it's a, he's a special Christian with a special tough calling, so that may not really apply to me. But maybe another part of us might say or might yearn for a life like that because that's a life that is sold out for something precious, something ultimate, namely Christ. And that may cost a lot, but that's still ultimate. Uh, you see, up to today's passage, Paul has been talking about his life, his life's motto, what his life is all about, that it's all about the gospel and Christ, so he could live or die all for Christ. And he ended his uh, a, a previous section before this passage by saying something like, his life, if he lives, he will live on mission for a purpose, much like Jim Elliot. So in today's passage, you know, Paul now will turn his attention from himself to the, the reader of this book, the church of uh, you know, Philippi, and he will urge to have the same attitude about their lives too, because it is also their calling. So let's look and, and Again, have the word of God just have its impact in our hearts, even on this, you know, one of those Sundays. May God speak to us. I have three points for you, as usual. Uh, first, live worthily of the gospel. Second, fight for the gospel. And third, suffer for the gospel. First, live worthily of the gospel. Here in the passage, right off the bat, Paul gives the Philippian church a direct command. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There the verb translated, let your manner of life be, that's actually one word in Greek. It's a special word that begs for our special attention. Uh, if you have ESV Bible, uh, you should see a footnote there. It says, it can also be translated, only behave as citizens. So this verb actually derives from the Greek word for city, polis. You know, think of Minneapolis, right? And the verb now tells people who live in the city to act like citizens, working for the good of their city. And I believe Paul is intentionally using this word out of all the other word choices that he could have used because the city of Philippi was a Roman colony 
And the people of the city, the Philippians, were Roman citizens with all of the benefits and privileges. And for them, being a Roman citizen was such an honor and pride, and they would flaunt it wherever they went by trying to live like, you know, Roman, you know, culturally and legally and, and so on. That was their badge of honor. But in the passage, here's a twist. When Paul says to live like citizens, he doesn't seem to have Rome in mind. He ha- seems to have a different city in mind. In the text, he says their life should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then later on in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, our citizenship, same word in Greek, or same family word in Greek, our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul is saying that the Philippian Christians are primarily the citizens of God's kingdom more than Rome before they're citizens of Rome. And they're to live by and for the gospel of Jesus Christ over the Roman custom and culture and class or whatever. And now, of course, this does not mean that Paul is saying they have to disregard their responsibilities as Roman citizens. I mean, they are to be good citizens too in in Rome or in Philippi. But their core identity is to be citizens dedicated to God. And the kingdom's central message, the gospel should be their pride, their song, and the norm they live by. And what that means is whenever there there are conflicts between the gospel and Roman rule or whatever, they are to choose the gospel because that's their primary allegiance. My wife, Deb, is a proud East Coaster because she grew up in Maryland in the the greater Washington, D.C. area. And... uh, Ever since we became friends in college and we started dating in college, you know, I've heard many times her talking about, you know, East Coast and, and I really felt like East Coast was heaven on earth. I heard so many times. Especially she would go on and on about how fresh seafoods are there. And even to this day, she refuses to eat sushi in Midwest. Well, Lest you, you know, persecute my wife for this, uh, she for sure appreciates Minnesota. You know, she appreciates the nature scenes and, you know, all these things. But, but even there, she compares time to time to uh, the great Appalachian Mountains in the east and the Atlantic Ocean over Lake Superior. But you see, when you hear somebody, you know, like, what they talk about the most and how they live, you can tell what their primary identities are and what their passion is in their lives. Likewise, for Christians, that's what it means to be citizens of kingdom of God. You know, if being a citizen of God's kingdom is your primary identity over Rome or America or wherever, 
then you will talk about it. You will be passionate about it. And people will see that that's your identity. And now, just so you won't misunderstand, and Paul is not advocating for just talking about it on social media or whatever, but it really, you know, is a matter of a heart. You know, if you are having this ongoing relationship with God where you remind yourself of your identity in Christ, that Christ saved you and made you, qualified you to be a citizen in his kingdom, and out of gratitude, you want to live to be more like him. And naturally then, what you talk about and how you behave will be, will look like, you know, you are driven by the gospel. And that's what happens when that's your identity. And, and lastly, about that point, you know, again, whenever there's, there are conflicts between the gospel and worldly values, you know, you are to evaluate everything through the lens of the Bible, whether it pleases God or just going with the flow of the culture. So live worthily of the gospel. You are citizen of God's kingdom. Second point, fight for the gospel. Now, Paul now will explain what it specifically means for the Philippian Christians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in their own context. Their context was this. The Romans surrounding them, the, the culture, the society, they were very hostile towards Christians. One of the reasons was because Romans called their emperors literally Lord and Savior, while Christians called Christ Lord and Savior. And they refused to you know, comply with the emperor cult. Another reason was Romans believed in many deities, and get this, they call Christians atheists because they only believed in one God. And some pagan worshipers were offended by Christians' exclusive way of worship. And lastly, some people were simply you know, thrown off by Christians because they were just so good morally. They were pure. They refused to you know, go with the evil, perverted culture of the time. So now, again, what does it mean for these Philippian Christians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? And Paul answered in three ways here in this passage, essentially telling them to go to war for the gospel because he would argue any good citizen would fight and even die for their country, right? So three things. First, stand firm. Verse 27 continues saying, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. The word there, stand firm, has an image of soldiers standing, you know, they're on their ground fast um, in the face of attacks on them. So Paul is saying the Philippine Christians are to hold their ground, do not give in their identity, their core teachings of the gospel. Do not give in to the threats and temptations to water it down or renounce it. Stand firm. And second, he says, strive side by side. Again, in verse 27, he continues saying, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word striving could also mean fighting the opponent in an athletic competition. So if standing firm earlier was the defense for the gospel, striving here is an offense for the gospel, meaning you don't just like stand there, but you move forward. Gospel moves forward and it spreads and even converts those who are opposing it. And in fact, if you've been following this series uh, of Book of Philippians, Paul earlier said in the book that he is in prison, but God is using that opportunity in prison in order to advance the gospel. In the face of attacks, gospel goes forward. It finds its way to hearts of the people. And now, pausing a little bit, um, interestingly, in these two words, standing firm and striving, we can see Paul is trying to emphasize something here by repeating. He says, stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind. Meaning, the one crucial element in fighting for the gospel is that the church, the Christians, are united. You know, last week, Pastor Pong, Pastor, Pastor, Pastor Chong, I don't know why I said Pastor Pong, Pastor Chong uh, talked about how Satan can use even Christians to divide the church, right, when he was talking about the church. And look at this here in this passage. It's not just the inside of the church. It says Satan is already using, you know, all these persecutions against the church to pressure them to quit their battle. So there is already outside pressure. But, he, but Paul is also saying Satan can also use from within, use people in the church to break the spirit and the unity. And if Christians are to be the army for the gospel, fighting the battles, then of course they have to be united. That's how they stand firm and strive side by side. And third and last, the Philippine Christians are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in their context by what? By like how? By being not frightened. Verse 28. He continues on. He continues on. It says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The word uh, being frightened has an image of horses uh, being startled by unexpected things around them. So in their fight for the gospel then, it's obvious what he's trying to say. Philippian Christians are not to fear. They shouldn't be surprised by all these oppositions against them. This is a war. There has to be enemy against them. And then Paul finally ends this battle cry for the Philippian Christians with this statement in verse 28. It says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He's basically saying that the end, the result of the battle is bright and glorious for Christians. Salvation, vindication. But it will be terrible for those who persistently oppose it. Destruction, eternal damnation. And, and it says that from God, meaning God is sovereign over 
these conflicts, and He will make sure that the result comes through. Glory for those who fight for the gospel and destruction for those who oppose the gospel. So here, Paul is basically encouraging Philippians, hey guys, trust God, He's sovereign. Keep going. You'll win if you continue on. That's what I'm saying. And, and while I was reading this passage, um, I, I thought of the white water rafting. I don't know how many of you have gone before, but I'm really intrigued by how it works. And I think it illustrates what Paul is trying to say here. Um, at least the ones I've gone to, um, for each raft, there are four people, and they all have different functions, right? They, some of them are you know, steering the, the raft, and others are just trying to be moors. You know, they're just moving the, the raft forward. And what's interesting is that if they try to do things the same, then what's going to happen is the raft just spins around. It doesn't go forward. So the point is, they have to be united, but not in the same way, in the same functions, but they have to be united in terms of their direction, that they want to move forward and they want to arrive at the destination. And another thing about whitewater rafting is that you shouldn't be scared of your raft you know, capsizing because you always get wet. That's like no-brainer when you're doing whitewater rafting because this is white water. It's not blue water, meaning the stream is fast and, you know, like, it's, it's part of the fun. So the, what matters is not, like, how many times you fall or, you know, being capsized. What matters is that you finish the race with your team. I think it's the same thing for what Paul is trying to say in regards to Christians fighting for the gospel. You know, when you're a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised by the oppositions, the opponents, and people criticizing and, you know, attacking you for what you believe. You shouldn't be surprised because that's part of the battle. If you are surprised, if you're scared, you cannot fight. And also, again, just like the rafting, the church has to be united. And this does not mean everybody thinks the same. You know, we can have differing views and differing passions and opinions about certain things about the gospel and how we do ministry. But the core of the message that we have to go out and save souls through the message of Jesus' death and resurrection and people's response of repentance of their sins. We have to agree on that. And that's all that matters. That's how we fight. But if we don't have that, if we argue over that, we cannot fight. We will not survive the war and battle. And now, some might wonder, as you hear this, whether this really applies to us. You know, we're not, we don't seem to be really experiencing the overt persecutions like the Philippians were experiencing. But I would argue that Satan is still at work to diminish our effect as a church. And for example, people are becoming more and more offended by the gospel message, especially when we say certain life choices are sin. Maybe some of you guys experienced that when you talked about that, when you thought about it. And now whenever you face that, especially 
you know, that's your, your friend or family members when they're opposed to that, it could be tempting to water the message down, saying it is about love, it is about acceptance and tolerance. And now, the disclaimer there is, we have to be gentle. We have to be wise in how we present the gospel. And we do need to sometimes work together with the non-Christians. You know, we cannot, our goal is not just to offend people. That's not it. We have to work together sometimes for the good of the society and things like that. But when the opportune time comes, we shouldn't be avoiding those important things, the core things of the gospel for fear of getting canceled or whatever else. And plus, so that's outside and inside, you know, we, we've, you know, witnessed, you know, whether on social media or even, I don't know, in our church, there are political divisions about certain things. And sometimes the conversation can get pretty belligerent. So now, as we face these oppositions of the gospel in our church, in, in the church as a whole. Man, we really have to take Paul's word seriously. If we are not united, if we are not fearless, we will fall. And, and that's really my hope for our church. You know, I was, really, I was really encouraged by, in fact, the conversation we had a few months ago about race. And I think we should have more like that, where there's almost respect and patience towards one another when we talk about these difficult things. And that's the best time to practice Christian forgiveness, you know, like Pastor Thomas talked about a few weeks ago. And there has to be lots of grace towards one another because we are united on the gospel. And those secondary things are important, but they shouldn't be dividing us. Because again, divided, we fall. United, we stand. So fight for the gospel fearlessly and united. And third, last point, suffer for the gospel. So Paul just charged the Philippian Christians and rallied us to go to war for the gospel. However, because we're humans, the lingering questions might be, why should Christian life be so hard? Why should we always suffer and face persecutions? I think that's a natural question and instinct. And now Paul will answer that for us and try to encourage us in, the, in that situation. So verse 29, he says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The key word there is granted. Uh, in Greek, the word grace actually has the same root as the, the word granted there. So granted then means to give something as a good gift. Grant something, give something as a privilege. And now with this in mind, I think the first part of the verse may not be too hard to accept, right? That we agree that our faith is a gift from God, meaning 
you know, left to ourselves, you know, we are stubborn. I'm stubborn. I'm rebellious. But by God's grace, he entered into my life and made my heart of stone into heart of flesh. Now I can choose God. Now I can believe in God. So faith is a gift from God. So that's settled, I think. But the second part of the verse, that our suffering is God's gift, is probably another level. But before we go on, I want to draw some few lessons or two lessons. First, if suffering is God's gift, then our suffering is not an accident, right? Meaning God orchestrated our sufferings purposely. Like we said earlier, Satan is the one brings, that brings suffering to trouble us, but it's ultimately God who allows him to do that for a very different purpose, purpose that is actually good for us and for his kingdom. God is sovereign. And for example, earlier in the book, Paul went as far as saying that God appointed him in the prison in order to advance the gospel there, a good purpose. So it's a gift. It's not an accident. Second, if suffering is God's gift, God is not punishing you if you're in Christ when you go through suffering. Meaning that, you know, a gift, by our own understanding in our culture, gift is not for punishing. That's not a gift. But gift is for the benefit of the recipient. So this concept of our suffering being God's gift clarified these things for us. So now, why is, a, why is suffering a gift? Why is that? Why is Paul saying this? I believe the answer is found in these three words in the, in the passage, which is repeated twice. For Christ's sake. Later in the book, Paul says this in chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. He's basically saying there that he can suffer anything, he can lose anything and everything because what that means is that he can have more of Christ exclusively. So it's good for him that he suffers. As hard as this sounds, that's really often what suffering does to us. Whenever we suffer, it, God takes away our idols from us so that we can have only Christ, that he is our intimate joy. But here, we have to go further. As a result of suffering taking away our idols, what happens ultimately is that Christ is magnified through us because of suffering, meaning through suffering in our lives, Christ becomes the only joy. He's the value of a one, nothing else. He's, he's magnified. He's worshipped. And through suffering, Christ becomes our only strength. There's nothing else we can depend on. His strength is magnified. So because of suffering, everything becomes all about Christ. His name is lifted high. And if you are really hanging in there, 
through the gospel, you will rejoice because you realize, wow, I have this privilege of being used by God to magnify Christ through my life. And that gives us more joy. And then what happens? We realize the world is watching me. And they see that Christ is my life and my joy, my strength. So you realize Christ is being magnified in the world because of your struggle, because of your suffering. It's all Christ being magnified. And that's what Paul is saying, I believe. That's why suffering can be God's good gift. Because through it, we have to experience the joy of Christ being magnified through us. And verse 30 is interesting what he says there. Paul says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I think here Paul is basically just telling them, hey, I know it's hard to take in. I know it's hard to understand that suffering is your gift, God's gift from, for you. But guess what? I, Paul, am also suffering with you. I'm actually a living example of how suffering can be used by God for my joy. It's hard, but let's suffer together. There's fellowship in suffering when there are sharing going on among Christians. So, again, Paul is saying suffering is God's good gift for us, for him. As many of you know, uh, I have a son named uh, Seth, who is uh, eight months old, a little over eight months old, almost nine months old now. And, uh, you know, he started crawling, and he's, like, really fast now. He crawls, like, everywhere, and, man, it's hard to catch him sometimes. And, um, and one thing that he's been doing a lot, you would know if you're familiar with, like, babies, he would, like, try to you know, put things in his mouth, and he, he like, licks things. And, and it's, it's not, like, anything wrong. It's because, you know, the babies are trying to, like, explore things and trying to, like, teeth sometimes because, you know, uh, Seth has, like, four teeth coming out. It's, it's pretty cute. Um, but anyways, so, yeah, um, teething is part of the deal, too. Um, but so licking is okay you know, as far as, you know, normality goes, but sometimes he licks wrong things. He, he loves to uh, stand beside the window, so he, like, starts licking the, the window frame, and he also loves, like, the AC vents, so he starts licking that. And, okay, that's okay, but then I, I, I like, observe the surface, and I see the, the paint is kind of peeling, so I'm like, oh, man. I don't want that for him. So I always go, Seth, no, no, no. And, and I always do that. And what's interesting is he now understands that he's, he's not allowed to do that. So whenever I say no, 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 he like stops and he smiles at me. And then he goes ahead and licks anyway. <laughs> like, okay. But you see, I think that interaction made me think. You know, from my perspective, I say no, 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 because I love him. I want what's best for him. So I, I do that. But I think from his perspective, 
I don't know, but he might be thinking in his growing brain, like, why is dad giving me affliction? Does he not know how awesome to lick the poisonous paint? Does he not know how cool it feels when I do that? Why is he doing this to me? So that could be his perspective, right? Because he doesn't know what I'm thinking. And I think that these days, I, I just have to say no so many times that I really wish that he would grow up and understand my heart for him so that we don't have to like constantly do this. Although I mean, it's fun, but I, it's just, man, I want to understand. And, and it got to me. I think that's similar to us and God when it comes down to suffering. From this passage, God is saying loudly that any suffering that we go through in our lives for Christ is his good gift. But when we hear that, it's really hard for us to understand understand because we cannot think like God. But the truth is, it's true. (laughs) And I believe it's only when we grow up Only when we grow closer to God and his heart and we get to know him personally, only then we can really get to accept and understand this gift and be able to be joyful. It comes down to our relationship with God. And and I think for me, uh, as as some of you guys know, I I turned 34 (laughs) a few days ago and I look, look back at my life, and there have been a lot of ups and downs. And I think suffering, I mean, I don't want to use that word lightly because I think some of you might be going through or have gone through many more crazy things than, than I did. But I think there are sufferings in my life. And, and I saw as painful as those memories were as I was trying to remember them. But man, they did draw me closer to God but it's still hard to understand. I have to grow more. So in light of this, um, I really want to encourage us as we face this reality of suffering being our gift and fighting for the gospel and trying to live like Christians, like citizens of heaven in this world, I really encourage us um, to take our walk with God seriously. And you hear that a lot in CLC, right? You know, we, we have a lot of events and meetings where we talk about let's repent, let's come to God, let's come back to God, let's pray, let's read the word. And, and to me, that's what I really appreciate about CLC because I think Christian life is really simple. Um, there's no formula, there's no special you know, rule that makes us successful spiritually. It really just simply boils down to how we are spending our times with God daily, faithfully. How are we growing closer to Him and how are we understanding His heart for me and for this world? And that's how we get through suffering in our lives. Um, You know, when I was a youth pastor, um, before I came to CLC, uh, I had a student who was very troubled. You know, he had deep depression, 
and uh, he was just causing a lot of you know, trouble for himself and for you know, his parents and you know, his friends and everybody else. And uh, so I would meet with them and I would also meet with uh, his parents um, just to hear them out and try to comfort them. And uh, so they would like, you know, share with me like how they're, you know, doing just through tears, right? They're just suffering. They're just, you know, aching their hearts for their son. And I never forget this one time what they said after all these tears. They said, you know, I have no idea how non-Christians can go through sufferings in this world because we are hanging in because, only because of the hope that we know in Christ. But if you don't have that hope, what do you hold on? How else can you go through sufferings in this life? And I think that's, that's the moment where I really took note of that because these people, the veterans of faith, they're saying, man, it just comes down to my relationship with God. Only when I know God, only when I trust God, only when I walk with Him, only when I trust God's word about my life, then I can understand what suffering is all about and I can keep going. And that is what it's all about. So whatever you have right now, or whatever happened in your life, let us take our walk with God daily seriously. Because that's the only place, that's the primary place where God gives us the due timely strength, as well as that's how we grow to know God and understand and accept um, little by little this gift of suffering. And that's the only way from which we can, you know, be sent out into the world and become warriors for the gospel and live like citizens of the gospel. Let's pray together. Let's uh, spend some time in prayer. Uh, I think um, it could be just one of the harder messages because it involves uh, a harder topic um, suffering uh, unless you're a masochist you know, none of us like suffering we shouldn't um, but Christ the gospel presents to us a marvelous way for us to get through the sufferings of our lives. Whatever that may be for you right now uh, or the past suffering that's kind of still lingering on for you, um, I just want to ask that you would bring that to God and um, may He heal you. And in all this, we're going to come back to what Paul has been emphasizing. It is a church affair. Um, we do this as a church together, as a community. Um, so 
spend some time right now just uh, mulling over these things together and um, may God encourage us even now to put our gaze upon Him and that He would give us His understanding to know these things and be able to go through this life for the gospel. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, you are our Father, and by your grace, um, we have been made your children, and therefore, just as any earthly fathers uh, would not give their children scorpions or snakes, you will never give us anything that is not good. And in the darkest nights, you are close like no other. Lord, um, perhaps even this time right now is a gift uh, where you are allowing us to hear this truth about who you are and uh, even the toughest things like suffering that it is gift from you Lord I pray that you would comfort your people uh, no matter where we are in our journey and from the comfort that comes from our intimacy with you uh, through your word and prayers. Uh, may we grow uh, inch by inch, little by little, always accepting your grace to keep growing so that we can continue to understand um, these things and um, get to even accept your gift of suffering. But Lord, uh, help us, God. Um, without you, uh, no understanding is possible. Without you, uh, no perseverance is possible. So encourage your people and refresh your people with your grace in our journey. But we look to you as our Father. Thank you for loving us infinitely, shown on the cross where your son, your infinite son died on the cross for us, for our sins. Help us to hold on and remember that love you have for us. Encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen.